You're listening to the Performance Group Podcast, a place to listen, learn, and get to know the unseen heroes of our local community. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Sean Kirby, and on the Performance Group Podcast, we make it our mission to learn from those around us and shed light on our local community. If you're new to the show, we have spoken to business leaders, community, organizers, friends, and family. And before we jump in today, I hope to ask you for a favor. If you could please just take one second to hit subscribe and share our posts. It would mean a whole lot to me, our team here at the Performance Group, and our amazing guests on today's show. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Performance Group Podcast. My name is Sean Kirby, and on today's episode of the Performance Group Podcast, I am joined by the one, the only, (laughs) David Cloud, Coach Cloud um, of Pendleton Heights High School. He has been a, um, well, let's go through the the groups of things. You have been coaching there for at least 40 years. You've been teaching there even longer than that? No, I've been at Pendleton. This just finished my 36th year. Wow. I was at South Dearborn for one year before that, and then three years at Madison Heights, which no longer exists, uh, in Anderson before while I was in college. So I just finished my 40th year of coaching and my 37th year of teaching. Goodness gracious. Well, you are now a member of the Indiana Wrestling Hall of Fame, correct? Correct. Congratulations. Thank you. I voted for you. I appreciate that. You deserve it. Well deserved. I will say that um, watching you in any hospitality room before a wrestling match, um, get up and speak, gives me chills to this day. (laughs) Thank you. It's one of those things where um, we talk all the time in our room about, you know, trying to perpetuate the sport, and that's where we want to be someday. So you're a great role model there. Appreciate that. So, um, Dave, I invited you on. Dave, that feels gross. Coach, I invited you on um, because I think that you have been a longstanding, um, you know, member of this community, obviously for 36 years teaching at Pendleton Heights High School. You've seen it grow. You've seen it morph. You've been around kids a lot of which are still here and, you know, even members of your, you know, assistant program. Yeah. So um, let's kind of talk about you were, you went to Ball State? Oh, yep. Ball State grad. So where, chirp, where'd, chirp. You, chirp, chirp. where'd you actually go to high school? Pendleton Heights. What year did you graduate? 1979. 1979. Long time ago. Yeah. Oh my goodness yes. gracious. They had school then. They had schools then. Was that was that before before the Markleville um, Pendleton? No, that was after the schools. The last year for the two schools separately was 1969, spring of '69. Pendleton High School and Markleville High School graduated their last classes, and then in the fall of 1969, Pendleton Heights High School opened, and and Markleville was no longer a high school; it was a middle school for a few more years, and then it closed eventually completely. Um, so. 1970 was the first graduating class. I was just talking to a lady the other day, and she was in that first graduating class. Really? So, yeah, so it was still a relatively new school when I got there. There was still a lot of shine on the apple. I believe that. So if I close my eyes, paint me a picture of what Pendleton was like in 1979. I see Dave with his long, flowing Had mullet. hair. Definitely had hair. Did you have the feathered mullet like everybody Did not. Else? Just had a lot of hair. Just a lot, a lot, of, lot hair. of unruly, hair? massive hair. Yes, very long. A uh, ridiculous-looking wad of hair on my you head. You got pictures of that? I do not. I've tried to destroy all of them. We've you know, done a deep dive and tried to get rid of all of them. Much smaller community, much more rural. Um, farms. When you got outside of town, it was farms, not the, the housing additions you see today. Um, yeah, we were talking about this before we started. You know, the, the buses were 
run by the farmers because there were so many farmers around. Uh, looking at the the name on names on the plaque uh, at the school that were on the school board on the high on the school board when the high school was built, it was there were several farmers on there because those were the guys that they had a big interest obviously in in the school because the taxes on their land funded the schools. Uh, they had an interest in and I, I, you know any organization the the people that are affected by it have an interest in it. So you had local business people and, and the farmers on the school board because it was in their interest to make sure one, we had a good school and two, that, that the things were kept in line, that there was, the costs were reasonable. Um, you know, when you're a farmer, that tax on the land, you know, you, you can't raise the price of corn because your taxes went up. So you, you care about what the taxes are. Uh, and that used to be a big issue. Anytime they talk about expansion or any extra things for the school, it's like, well, you know, how's this going to affect the farmers? Because they have you know, it's not a fixed income, but they don't determine their income. Yeah, you know, that's they, true. They, they get what they get when, when they go to market with their products, you know. And you, you were starting to see a lot of farmers back then involved in hedging. Uh, Jeff Perdue is a guy that had wrestled at Pendleton. I talked to him about a lot, learned a lot of, from him about, you know, how he hedged some of his crop, you know, how much he would do so that he would, you know, he said, I, I need to know if I can pay for that tractor, you know, and I need to know in April if I can pay for that tractor, not in October yeah. when I'm bringing in the crop. So, uh, it's it's changed, you know. Obviously, uh, a lot busier here. You know, the traffic is a lot more. You know, when you come through town in the afternoon, uh, you definitely didn't see that back then. Uh, but I think a lot of the essential nature of the town has stayed. It's still a, a good place. I think it still is a very good place. Yeah, absolutely. So, was it more of a suburb of Anderson when Anderson was was, bo- was very Anderson much. booming back in '79? Oh, yeah. I, it was. They were starting to struggle then. That's when you started to see the troubles. Late '70s, early '80s is when the factories. You know, you, we drive through Anderson with, with drivers there with the kids, and you see these big empty lots, and it's like that was, you know, that was Guide, that was Delco. You know, there were at the peak there were like twenty seven thousand factory jobs in Anderson. They were making everything from headlights to fire trucks. How fire truck was there in Nicholson File? Um, so there were twenty seven thousand factory jobs, all paying good union wages, good benefits. You had to pay good benefits and wages, or you lost your workers to Guide and Delco. All the time, so it was a booming town. They had three high schools, all bigger than Pendleton Heights, and um, you know the it used to be called Sun Valley. The racetrack was every Saturday night. You know, Friday night there were races out there, and you saw even like indie guys would come up and and race there. And the the baseball leagues were unbelievably talented because you had so many factory jobs, and the de- times were so good back then. You know, when your GM selling half the cars in the world, um, you could say, listen. We need a shortstop for our softball team. This guy played three years in the Cubs organization, and he needs a job. Why don't we give him that job as you know, as machinist helper, and, and then we got a good shortstop for our soft, our baseball team. You know, so you had you had guys that you know. I wasn't a big baseball guy, but you had people talk about it. it's like, yeah, they, you know, they're pretty good. They got a guy pitched in the you know the red system for a year, uh, you know, and he's their pitcher. Well, yeah, he's probably going to do pretty good against the you know thirty five year old guy who was a high school star twenty years earlier. You know, yeah. So and they all brought their kids in and flooded the school systems with. Yeah, you know. I mean, and the guys, and it was it was what you aspired to back then. You know, the 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 guys. You know, a lot of people lived in Pendleton because they they made good wages, and especially the the skilled people. And so, like the the job you looked at, and said, man, that's what I want to be as an engineer. Because the engineers were the guys, one, they were obviously really sharp. Um, several of my friends, their fathers were engineers. My dad was in the finance business. But, um, it's, you know, it's like, man, they got a pool and a house and a boat and new cars. Of course, they got that GM discount, so they're always driving new cars. 
And, and it's like, yeah, you wanted to be an engineer for a long time. I wanted to be an engineer until I discovered how much math was involved. And it's like, <laughs> all right, need something else. But yeah, uh, yeah it was, it, Pendleton was very much a, they, you know, you just refer to it as a bedroom community, mostly for in Anderson. Now that's obviously shifted down Fishers in Indianapolis, but because there just aren't the jobs in Anderson anymore. Yeah. So if you're driving, what, what kind of car, what was your first car? <laughs> a, <laughs> a Pontiac Astra. There you go. Right? It was a, a fancy Vega. All right, so it was. It was. I love that car, though. I, I, you don't get cars like that because it ran really well. And uh, bought it from a buddy of my dad's, Bob Bays, who ran an auto dealership in Anderson. There was a lot of good guys in the auto business. And dad knew all of them because he was in the finance business. And so he said, "Hey, Bob will treat us right." So he went in there and bought this car. And that yeah, was when they were trying aluminum engines, and they were a massive failure for the cars. <laughs> and this one had an iron. You know, it's got an Iron Duke engine. It'll be good for you. And so I, I ran the wheels off that car, and it got hit twice. So I collected more insurance premiums on it than I paid for it. There you go. You just don't get cars like that, you know. <laughs> so I lo- I drove that car until there was nothing left of it, and finally had to trade it in because it just I was you know it was like filled up with oil and checked the gas, you know, because it was I was I looked like a World War II destroyer laying down a smoke screen when I go up. When and you down. go up and down the road. Oh God, I I feel bad. I apologize to everybody who drove behind me. Yeah, that didn't have the emission regulations that they have today. Thank God, I would I would have been on death death row because it. <laughs> There weren't any mosquitoes in the area when I went through. I'll say that, though. Were there, uh, so if it scared away mosquitoes, did it scare away girls? Didn't have any problem with that. I can, uh-huh. I can handle that on my own. Yeah, to handle that <laughs> on your own. Didn't need any mechanics. So if you were driving downtown, uh, let's call it the main drag in Pendleton, and you come out towards the high school, um, what businesses do you kind of still see today? Uh, when I go by, they're, they're rehabbing it out here now, uh, out close to the interstate, or out close to 3867, was Puckett Chevrolet. You know, and that was, you know, every small town had a car dealership and Puckett Chevrolet was the, the guy here. Uh, you know, he supplied the cars to the driver's ed at the school. So I still think of Puckett Chevrolet, Tanky Pharmacy downtown was, you know, you'd go in there and uh, they had a counter. You could get a sandwich and a root beer and that was really good. From the pharmacy? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Showing my age. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The pharmacy there is right on the corner uh, downtown here and uh, where one of the hair salons is now. Um, and yeah, that, you know, ice cold root beer and a frosted mug. It was so good. And, uh, the old trail was downtown then. And, uh, there was a jewelry store where the bank is now. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was, it was definitely different downtown. Um, you know, Donnie's Tavern, I think was there. Uh, that's the stable now, but a lot of the buildings are still there, but, uh, you know, they, they're, I don't know if anything is left of the original businesses that were downtown. Mesa's where the BMV was, was Mesa's grocery store. Well, and then that was Low Bills, and then they built yeah. the marsh. And, right. You know, Doug Owens worked really hard to try to bring a grocery store into the downtown area for a long time. We didn't have success on it, but uh, he was really committed to trying to keep a grocery store in the downtown, but it just didn't work out. At the time, marsh was just too big a competitor, I think, to, for a small store to make it. They might make it now, but it's you know that moment may have passed. Yeah. Well, and just from a parking standpoint – the amount of volume that these big box like um, Walmart's and everything can do, you just have yeah. to have parking for it. A downtown makes it kind of tough. It does. It's tough for business, you know. And even somebody that's that's doing well downtown, man, it's you know, if it's raining, you know, you got to park block away and walk through the rain. A lot of people won't do that. Yeah. Know, the bigger chain restaurants can have a big parking lot right in front of the business, you know. And it's it is tough downtown. It always, you know, it's been a challenge, and we saw the same thing in Anderson, you know, as. as as the malls open up and everything, people are like, "Why well, do I want to do the traffic downtown when I've got you know acres of parking and I can walk through all these different stores?" You know, when we drive downtown, I point out, you know, the, hey, the library that was 
that was Sears, you know, and, and JCPenney was right over there. And all the stores used to be downtown, and now there's very little downtown. Well, and now you don't even have to go to a store. True. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, or a restaurant. No, my wife and I were talking about this. Like, hey, are, how many of these stores are going to recover? Are the malls going to recover? Because, you know, you didn't really have to go before COVID, and now that people are used to buying everything online, you know, we're getting toothpaste. Uh, on, I got know, toilet bowl cleaner yesterday in the mail. We did too. We do too. Uh, it's cheaper and they drop it off on your doorstep, you know, and it's like, why would I want to go to the store? It's it, but like you and I know, so you're also a economics teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, were you, did you go to school and the whole time was focused on the finance side or the economic side? No, or? I was in marketing. Um, I was writing up, I was thinking about this this morning. Um, Coach Broughton, who passed last month, um, I was riding up to the all-conference football banquet in Muncie uh, my senior year, uh, like in uh, November. And uh, he said, have you thought about teaching and being a coach? And, and, you know, just the arrogance of a teenager. I looked at him and I said, no, you guys don't make enough money, All right? Because I knew I was going into marketing. I was going into marketing research. That's what I knew I wanted to do. Uh, and I got to Ball State, and it was a, that was my major, was marketing. And um, they dropped the, the uh, marketing research uh, as a major there. They, they, they still have marketing, but they just they were not doing research anymore. There weren't enough students in it. As it turned out, it, you know, you have an image of what it's like. You know, it's like, what do you like about this product? You know, tell me what you think. And it's like, no, it's it's like 90% math. You know, and they're doing statistics and everything. It's like, oh, more math. This is what drove me out of engineering. You know, so there's math everywhere. You know, you're like Steve Martin, <laughs> more cans. So um, I just, I, I just went into marketing, sales, and promotion. That was my major, and that's my first degree was in marketing, sales, and promotion. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was I was going into marketing. I had applied um, for a training program with Johnson Controls. It's, a, uh, it's on building environmental systems, and because uh, I I thought that'd be really cool. Their headquarters is in Dallas, and I've I've been a cowboy fan since I was eight years old. I was riding on the bus and some kid bandwagon cowboys. Yeah, and it's like, oh my god, cowboys! There's cowboys. There's a team called the kids. So I was an instant fan. Then I watched him. If you don't like Roger Staubach, you don't like football. So they're in Dallas, and so I applied to that program. And then I got a call from Coach Broughton. I'd coached a middle school team. I'd done wrestling by then. I was already. I told him it's like, man, I really like coaching. He said, hey, you gotta you gotta want to teach. And he said, coaching is a a side thing. You know, you gotta want to be a teacher and work help kids. You can't go into it to be a coach, or you're not going to be a very good teacher or a good coach. Uh, so I coached at Madison Heights, and then I coached a middle school football team for Coach Broughton. And so the summer after I graduated, I was up in Muncie and just waiting to hear on some some job applications. And, and uh, Coach Broughton called and said, listen, are you still thinking about teaching? I said, well, I thought about it. I'd ask about the Pendleton job when it had opened. Uh, they thought it was going to open up. And and I uh, said, no, we're, we're wanting to hire a person that's already got their teaching degree. And uh, he called and said, listen, there's an opening at South Dearborn High School. Coach Broughton was from Lawrenceburg, and Aurora is right down the road. And he said, they've got an opening. They need a business teacher and a wrestling coach. Do you want to talk to them? So I went down on a Monday morning. I had an interview. Wednesday, they called and said, do you want the job? And I said, yeah, just almost on a whim. I said, okay, I'll take it. He's like, are you ready for this? Like, I don't know. You know, when you're, when you're 24, you think you're ready for everything. And Friday, I was moving down to... Uh, Aurora. Really? And started school the next week, the next Monday, and had no clue what I was doing. Uh, but fell in love with it instantly. I thought, this is where I'm going to be. You know, didn't pay very well down there, right across the river from Kentucky. And so wages reflected that. Um, <clears throat> and taught the year down there and had a lot of fun, had a lot of success with the wrestling team, and really enjoyed 
the classroom and everything more than I ever thought I would. And, uh, and then I got a call. We were, uh, it was a South Dearborn was like almost brand new building. That was a consolidation. And so, um, they had everything, you know, that they could think of as your building. So it was open concept, which was the dumbest thing in the history of schools. Uh, <laughs> no walls on the room. So you're going to have teenagers and no walls. Perfect. That'll work out right. You know, so when a kid walked down the hallway, you know, 30 sets of eyes go to that kid. You know, if you're showing a film, the classroom next door gets to share it with you. Uh, and But they had phones in the room. I was like, whoa, that's cool. You know, you walk in, it's like, what are you going to do with it? I have no idea. Why, why would I want a phone in my room? So I was in the middle of class one day. And the phone rang, and I picked up the phone. It's like, hello. It's like, this is Davis Lauren Skinner from Pendleton Heights. I'm like, hi. What do you need? <laughs> He's like, I'd like to know if you'd like to come talk to us about the job at Pendleton. It's like, I'm literally in the middle of class. And some of my athletes are in that class. Like, oh, uh, I'll have to call you back. Well, it was kind of an awkward conversation. You're like, uh, okay. And so I came up here and, and uh, interviewed with him. And, and uh, they were talking to several people, and it drug on for a while, but Finally, uh, in June, uh, he called and said, listen, if you want the job, we'd like you to be our next head wrestling coach. Coach Webster's uh, had gone into private business, and, and so I took the job and been here ever since. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, you just kind of fall into it, but lucky because, you know, you see people and you've got people in your class that you graduated and some people that I went to college with still haven't found what they want to do in their life, you know, and at 24 – I found what I wanted to do. You know? It found you. I guess. But a good coach, it. yeah, led you towards what he thought you would be a good A good coach. You know, that's, uh, coach Broughton, his influence was much bigger than on the football field. It's the relationships. You know, he got the, the – I, I didn't know anything about – I didn't know where South Dearborn was. But he knew Bill Slayback, the AD down there. And Bill called him and said, do you know anybody? And he, he called me. Uh, and then when the job opened here, uh, when Jeff made his decision he was going to leave um, – he, you know, Coach Broughton talked to people, and they said, yeah, we would be willing to work with somebody that's going to work to get their degree, uh, their teaching degree. And so they called me, and that's how I ended up here. So Can you still do that today? They have an accelerated program to encourage people to try to get it done in a year. It took me a long time to get it done, uh, partially because I just wasn't sure early on if this is what I'm going to do uh, and stick with it. So I didn't want to take a year off and not have a job and go back to school full time. So I did classes along the way, but I think they have an accelerated program now where you can get it. I think what, uh, like we, what Jake's wife is doing, uh, getting her program. Yeah. So, you know, they have, so they have an accelerated program for teaching as well. And you can get it done, I think in one year. Good. Yeah. Well, in yeah, how the world has changed to call somebody and say, Hey, you want to be a teacher? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. I didn't know. I, you know, if I knew what I, no, now going in, I probably said no because it was, you know, was, you were just lost the first few weeks. You're like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, and you're just like, why am I so exhausted? Yeah. You know, I I, I actually went home one day and <laughs> this is the stupidity of not knowing what's going on and not not having modern technology. So I went home and sat down on the couch and fell asleep, and because I was just so exhausted, and uh, I I woke up all of a sudden, it's like, oh my god, what time is it? I looked at and it was like it was like. 7.30, and school started at like 7.45, and I lived in this little town called Dillsboro, which is about 20 minutes away. So just run down the stairs, you know, through some of my mouth and ran down the stairs, and, and I get in the car, and I'm driving like crazy down the highway trying to get to school. Like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be late. I'm going to get fired. This is so terrible. And as I'm driving, it suddenly hits me. It's like it's getting darker. Why is it getting darker? <laughs> All right? It was 7.15 at night or 7.30 at night, uh -huh. not 7.30 in the morning. 
All right. I was that out of it and that tired that I had fallen asleep for a couple <laughs> hours and thought I'd slept all night. And so, yeah, I was just exhausted at the start. Uh, and everything, you know, again, that open concept building. My room, we were in there the very first day and we were next to the typing room. And so they had manual typewriters. So they start typing and you're like, what is that? You know, it's like it was like a train coming through. The, <laughs> Especially the everybody all at once. Yeah, 30 kids typing. Um, and the kids said, it's the typewriter. like, what? But within like a week, you notice it. It's like you the know, cicadas. Yeah, you get used to them. They just become background noise. But yeah, it was it was a heck of a transition into into doing that for a living. Uh, and, but I'm glad I did it, you know. It, it was a good good decision to do it. Well, you you spoke about it earlier, and you said, I'm not going to do that. There's not enough money in it. Uh, <laughs> that's what every single person says, right? Even to this day, you hear a lot of kids to say. To some extent, yeah. Now, the truth is, you know, and this is what you and I were talking about, it's like it doesn't matter how much money you make if you don't save and invest it. You can make a million. You know, you see all these baseball players that made millions of dollars, and they're broke. And the kids are like, Mr. Cloud, how could you make 50 million bucks and be broke? It's like, it's easy. Spend 51 million, mm-hmm. you know? Get, say yes to everybody. Come on, you and I played together when we were kids. Don't you think you should fund my business? I got an idea. It's sure to go. It's a restaurant. You know, nobody's ever done that. You know, and they, they pay for all these businesses and they pay they take care of everybody but themselves. You yeah. Because hey, you're 26 years old, just signed a major contract. You're gonna be playing the sport for the next decade. Yeah. And then you tear up your ACL, right? Or you just fade and they cut you and you go from making millions. And it's like, oh, what other skills do you have? Uh, you know, and knock people down. Okay, there's there's not a lot of calling for that out in society. You're hitting the fastball, uh, so it's you know it, it's it doesn't matter what you make if you don't put money away. You're right. You don't make uh, what what other people make because part of it is you work 185 days a year instead of 200. Yeah, but so. you also, if we were to count how many hours you work, if we're counting wrestling practice after school. You don't want to do that. <laughs> if you do that, you're going to be really Because you're there from 6 to 8. Yeah. 6 to, yeah. Good long days. Yeah. 6 to 6.30 or so. Yeah, it's long days. Uh, so, yeah, you don't, if, if you're coaching for the money, you're probably in it for the wrong reason. Yeah. So, it's a good thing for wrestling. Nobody coaches for the money. Uh, very few do. So, yeah. Uh, it's you got to love what you do, you yeah. know. And if you do that, you know the old saying: the money will follow. Well, maybe not. But if you if you start early, you know, this is the thing. Looking back, I wish they'd had. You know, when I started teaching, Indiana still couldn't invest in equities because they'd gone bankrupt in the 1800s investing in the canals, which the railroads quickly made obsolescent. Um, and so we couldn't invest in equities. You couldn't. Your your 403b couldn't go into equities. You had to go into insurance contracts and things like that. So you look back, it's like, man, how much money did that cost me? Yeah. You know, how many how many tens of thousands of dollars by making four percent or five percent a year instead of fifteen, you know, or more in the equities market. Because, you know, I've started teaching the eighties, so I missed the nineteen eighties, which at that time was one of the greatest decades ever. You know, and, and I missed most of that because we couldn't do equities. Yeah. So that was a big change when the state Put that up as a referendum, and people voted to change the Constitution and allow investment in equity. So if you have a young teacher start out today, start putting money away. A lot of corporations have at least a small match. You know, it's not as much as you have in the corporate world because we're spending tax money, not not profits, uh, to put in there. But if you start doing that early, invest in equities, um, and stick with it, you know, you, you still get a pension. You know, you're a state worker, so you get a pension. Uh, and then your 403B, there's no reason you can't retire with a really, really healthy um, financial picture. You know, if, if you just 
plan. You know, work with people like your dad. Uh, don't because people are so woefully uh, ill-informed. You know, and, and when we brought in, uh, it was Tim Thomas and Layla Robinson and I wanted to bring in. We we were all into investing. Tim's one of the smartest guys I ever met, which. Um, you know, he, he was into investing and we said, well, you know, our choices were three insurance companies, all right? And they're good insurance companies is Washington, Lincoln, and Horace Mann. Um, but that was our choices. That's who you can invest with. And after they changed the constitution, then those companies like, Hey, you know, we, we got a mutual fund. It's like, what do you know about mutual funds? We got a mutual fund. You know, <laughs> I was like, do you guys know anything about stocks? We got a mutual fund, you know, but the, like, that was your choice, you know? And so. Uh, we went to the school corporation and said, what do we have to do to bring in uh, a, a real mutual fund carrier, somebody that this is their business? And they said, well, they give us a number. It's like you have to get this many people in the corporation to say they would go with them if they were brought in to indicate there's an interest. And But they said, well, why do you want to do that? And it's like, well, because our choices are terrible. You've got like, you know, this this insurance company has two or three mutual funds. That's it. It's like, what if I have an interest in this? No, we don't do that. You know, they're just plain vanilla funds. And they said, well, you got three different companies. It's like, no, we have two. One of the companies was closed to new investors. And the school corporation wasn't aware of it because they didn't have any obligation to be aware of that. And so it's like, they are? It's like, yeah, they don't take new investors. Like, huh, we didn't know that. <laughs> so we went around and put a roadshow together and went to all the different buildings and met with the staff that wanted to meet with us and explained why equities. And we're starting from the very start. It's like, what's a stock? I don't know how many times I got asked that by teachers because it's like, it's not what you're doing. You know, if I'm teaching elementary school. Well, you're also, yeah, you have a finance background from your father. And then also that's the class you teach. Right. And so, but they're, you know, I have adults saying, I don't, what does that mean when you buy a stock? It's like, what? It's like, what do you mean when you buy a stock? Like, but they had no idea. It's like, well, what's a mutual fund? What's that? And so we had to explain what mutual funds were and what stocks were. And we were at a meeting out east and one of the ladies there, she goes, no, wait a minute. Is this all guaranteed? And I said, no, none of it's guaranteed. These are you're investing in companies. Do these companies falter? You, your investment falters, but they're spreading. You know, it's a mutual fund. They're they're buying hundreds of companies. She says it's not guaranteed. I said, no, it's not guaranteed. She said, and Tim was standing right next to me, and she stood up. She goes, I'm getting four percent in the guaranteed fund, and that's good enough for me. And stood up and walked out of the meeting. And Tim looked at me and he said, What do you do? You know, like she's she's happy with her four percent, and. She, she didn't join, uh, but we we got that in there, and, and they, they brought Fidelity in, uh, which they're no longer a carrier. There were some legal and technical things that they couldn't have them in anymore, but uh, Valak took their place. But, um, you know, we had teachers that, that one of the one of the ladies that retired a uh, long time ago now, but she, she bought Tim and I a steak dinner. She said, hey, I, I made 20000 extra dollars in the last few years. I was teaching back when that was a much more significant amount. It was about 25 years ago. Uh, she bought us a, a steak dinner because she said, I wouldn't have had that 25 grand if I hadn't started investing in, in stocks. You know, I was I was doing like everybody and putting my money in those annuities. Well, it, it goes to show that um, no matter what the industry you're in, I mean, teaching is an industry. Schools, government entities sure. are an industry. Um, young people still bring good ideas. Yeah. Yeah, that impact everybody. Yeah, you gotta. You, you, Which is why you teach is to teach kids to teach that. Right. Yeah, you get. You know, I've got. We we do a lot of stuff with investing, and I, when I have a kid tell me it's like, hey, I'm starting a mutual fund. You know, my dad and I are sitting down. We're starting a mutual fund. It's like, yeah, that kid's gonna be okay for the rest of his life. He's gonna teach his kids. I was I was just talking to uh, Ryan Edmondson, who wrestled for us in the early '90s. Went on wrestled at IU, wrestled at Hofstra. 
and then was a coach at Hofstra for a while. He still lives in New York. He's a state trooper now. And we were talking about investing, and he said, I want to tell you something. He goes, you and I were sitting um, at a bar after I got out of college, and you told me about getting started investing. Whatever I did, start start putting money away for your future. You know, start a, start a retirement program. He said, I want you to know I passed that on to my kids. And he said, I've got – he's still got a daughter that's in college, but his two sons are in the military. One's in the Navy and one's in the Air Force. And he said his oldest son is – He's 25, 26. He said he's got $40,000, you know, already in his mutual fund. And he said, my youngest son, he's like 19, he's got $10,000. And he said, they're already started. And he goes, I got that from you. And so it's like, you know, it's, you, you put that out there and it, people can carry that on and, and pass it on to the next generation. So those are kids that... You can I, call that compounding interest. There you go. Yeah, they've definitely grown that. And so now it's, he's got his own kids started. And I, I'm pretty sure that they'll, they'll do that with their kids, you know, because if they're... You know, they're, they're in the military, similar teaching, right? You don't, you don't get paid what the job is worth, uh, probably a lot less because people don't, you know, my job's not always fun, but nobody shoots at me. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sent into a combat zone, so they're not being paid anywhere near what they're worth, but yet they're going to be financially secure. They're going to get their military pensions if they do their 20 years, and they're going to have a significant amount of money put away in their retirement funds, and they're going to be okay. And I'm sure they'll share that with their children, whatever they do. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you look at your position not only as a, a coach and a leader in the wrestling room, but in the classroom, and this is all you're trying to explain to kids, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's life, life's bigger than whatever you're doing right now, whether it's wrestling or whatever. You know, and most people are not going to make a living at any sport, whether it's basketball, football, or wrestling or anything else. You're going to have to make a living doing something else and put the money away and, and plan for the future. But that's where I think sports have that value is, is teaching kids to grind and you know, you see this, I'm sure, with your clients. Is that you're not going to have a fortune in the first year or the first two years or the first three years, you know, or really for the first decade. You know, there's not a lot of money there. And you're like, why am I doing this? It's like, well, it's a grind, but you got to build your base. You know, it's like, why are we struggling in wrestling practice? Well, because you're not in shape, you know, but we got to get in shape. It doesn't do any good to know moves if you're going to run out of gas and get pinned at the end of the second period. Yeah. You know, so it's, I think sports, whether it's football, basketball, whatever, wrestling teaches kids to the perseverance, you know, sticking with stuff. And I think that's especially a sport like wrestling where it is a grind the whole way through a match, you know, and you can be getting your butt kicked and then win, you know, you can't, you can't hit a 30 point shot in basketball or, or, or hit a 12 run grand slam in, in uh, baseball, but in wrestling, you can be down 13 points and pin the kid. I've had that happen both ways. Yeah. <laughs> Leading by 13 and trailing by 13. So uh, I think that's what's what's unique about wrestling. One, you know, I, every coach thinks their sport's the best, and if you don't, there's something wrong with you as a coach if you don't think your sport's the greatest <laughs> sport. But I just think that, you know, because you get manhandled when you lose a wrestling match. You know, if somebody was faster than you in track, they run by. It's like, man, that kid ran by me. It's like, yeah, but he didn't grab you and throttle you yeah. for six minutes. Put you, know? you to the he, ground. He didn't have fun with you, on, you know, so his girlfriend could watch him like, like they did in a wrestling match. Yeah. You know, or so his parents, because his parents, you know, enjoy seeing him hurt other kids. Uh, so it, I think that's what makes wrestling so great is that you have to endure so much to, to have success in it. And even the kids that don't have success, you know, we're talking about uh, um, Katie and I have a really close friend, Adam Briner, who – wrestled for us and was not a successful wrestler, wasn't on the varsity as a senior, um, but loved wrestling, loved the craft of it, just loved the sport and was a great kid. He was a, one of the smartest kids in the school and um, 
went into the insurance business, works up in Chicago area, and uh, he ended up coaching. Illinois has state championships for middle school in sports. They have a sanctioned uh, state championship, and he coached the middle school state championship wrestling team. You know, and there's a guy that couldn't make the varsity as a senior, but is still involved in sports, still loves the sport, and you know had had a you know wrestling had a big impact on his life, even though. He wasn't good at it, you know, but but it, it really changed his life in a lot of positive ways. He saw how he could impact others. Yeah, and he just he he understood the sport. He just wasn't a very good athlete, but but he gritted it out, you know. And I think that's he learned that, you know, life's a grind. A lot of times, marriage a grind. Set points, you know, raising kids is a grind. You know, you're going to be sitting in the stands watching sports that you don't particularly find enjoyable, played by kids who are not particularly good at it. You know, but that's that's what parents do. You grind it out. You 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 know you get the leaves out of the gutter. Whatever the whatever the grind job you got to do is. Um, and I think wrestling is really good at teaching kids how to survive that grind and how and understand it's like you know the the uh, uh, they had a guy for Stanford when they were trying to drop the Stanford program. It was a video that he posted and. The big thing he said was, you know, wrestling makes you comfortable being uncomfortable, you know, because life is uncomfortable a lot of times. And I think wrestling is really good for teaching you to get through the discomfort, you know, because it is uncomfortable. When somebody's smashing your head down, putting a half on you, you know, knocking you flat from your feet with a, with a takedown, it, it's uncomfortable. You know, even when you're winning, sometimes it's uncomfortable. But, you know, life's like that, too. You know, you can, you can be headed in the right direction and still getting beat up a little bit as you go along. Yeah. And taxes and family and you know parents getting older and all those things that, that hit you in life are all a grind. But I think participation in any sport, but I think particularly wrestling, really gears you towards handling that. And it's it, it takes away a certain level of um, we'll call it blame because it's just you, right? So there's no one to blame. There's not eleven people on the football field saying, "Oh, he missed his his right. man," right? It's, it, it's a different aspect. I think it's why it's good for kids to play so many sports. We encourage our wrestlers to play football because it's good to be in a team atmosphere and everything. But, yeah, what, you know, Bill Uzipovich, throwing out a lot of names of the guys I've encountered over the years, he was the coach at Greenfield, and he said wrestling's almost an un-American sport now because you, there's nobody else to blame, right? You're out there. You're, people are going to see if you succeed or fail. There's no hiding it, right? There, there's no way to explain a pin was really a victory, you know? Uh, you didn't really, you know, push the guy to the limit. He stuck you. you your team gave up six points because he pinned you. So, you know, he said it's almost un-American that you got to grind all the time. There's very little glory in it, right? Uh, you're going to have your your family and a, and a few close friends in the stands until you get to the state finals. And, and you know, nobody's going to really care. Your name may not be on the announcements the next day. And, and there's nobody to put it on if it doesn't go well. And he said that's almost un-American now. Uh, and he told me that 20 years ago. Uh, so, yeah, it's... That lived a lot of people, up to be pretty true. Yeah, very. He's a prophet. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, it, it is true that you just don't get the glory you deserve in a sport. You know, swimmers don't either. You true. Know, cross-country runners. There's, that's, that's why I really uh, have an affinity for those sports. You know, I've really uh, got a lot of respect for Coach Herzlinger, our, our uh, swim coach there. She's really making that program at the high school into something special. And we bring our wrestlers in and dip them in the pool. And uh, we, we do our, our ridiculous uh, synchronized swim we're still doing that and we post that and everything and they stop and watch it's like i can't believe you're watching this because it's so idiotic oh yeah, I love we it, do though. it and they love it and and she's just great and she, you know letting us in there because imagine you know coming into any sports and hey can i use your facility 
you know, while you're using it. Can I, can you let us in here? But they, they accommodate us. And, and, you know, that's somebody asked me the other day, where'd you, where'd you learn to coach? Cause I wasn't qualified to coach when I started. And it's like, I was surrounded by great coaches, you know, and still are today, still am today. You know, it's, um, you know, the, the cross country program at the, at the high school, you know, if you don't, you don't respect our cross country coach, you just don't know cross country cause she's just amazing. Um, so we just got so many great coaches and I, you know, I, I snuck in a couple gym a couple times and was watching coach Ballard coach. Cause man, he's one of the most intense guys, uh, that I've ever seen. You know, it's like the, his practices are unbelievably intense. It's like, wow, that's like that's like wrestling level intensity. They're they're he's out there and on them, and they're bouncing the balls, and they're bouncing two basketballs and changing directions. But it's like I'd bounce one basketball off my foot, and they've got two going full speed, and then running through cones and everything. It's like, but that's they're building something special. You know, they're they're building um, something really amazing there, and I think that they're gonna they're gonna have success because of that. That intensity is gonna pay off. Yeah, and I think rubbing shoulders with great coaches and great people make you, you great learn. yourself. Yeah, yeah, you want to learn. It's like okay, I see what they do in there, and um, you know and how they do it, and what, can I apply that to what I do? And and it, yeah, it, it does make you better because you see, you know, and, you, and as you get older, you know, you become more focused on the process and everything. And but you see those young coaches and that enthusiasm level, and it's like this is what you were talking about. That's why you need young coaches in the room you know you need those young guys who are still you know energetic and want to jump out there and go 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 because uh, that that naturally you know you call them as you age right so you want those those uh young guys in there who bring that that level of energy in the room brings you back up too it does keeps you young that's don't look you it but <laughs> feel it <laughs> no but that's good that's great and you do have more energy than anybody else that i know at a oh there's guys that uh, one of my mentors, Randy Kalitza, and he's 77 years old, and he runs circles around me. He's unfreaking believable. I mean, he's just he's go 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 all the time, and he's one of those guys that you know I keep. He's he's retired several times, and every time he retires, like you'll be back, Q. He's like, nope, nope, Dave, I'm done, I'm done. This is it, I'm done. Uh, and he's now coaching at Mooresville. He was down in Florida. It's like you realize you're doing retirement wrong when you retire to Florida. You don't come back to the north during the winter months. During the winter to work, <laughs> it's like you're a reverse snowbird. Uh, he's down there now, so it's like he got down there for the humidity. It's like Q, you're doing retirement wrong. Uh, but but and but a great example of passing that on. Randy was the coach at Mooresville back in the '70s, and he's got it built that into a great program, the Mooresville Classic, and all the stuff they do down there. And then he he went to some other schools, ended up going to North Carolina and then in Florida for his last few years, and he's retired down there. Uh, but one of his, I was walking in the hallway one day, and a guy walked up, and he goes, hey, can I talk to you for a second? I said, yeah. He said, my name's Steve Dooley, and I'm, I got a daughter that's going to school here, and I was wondering if, if you need any help in the wrestling program. It's like, well, have, do you have wrestling experience? He goes, well, I wrestled for Randy Kalitza. And so I called Q because we're, we're close, and I called him. He goes, oh, get him. He said he was a state runner-up. He's a great wrestler. He's a great guy. Uh, he said, you you want Steve Dooley in your room. And he came and coached with us for several years and is, just, is a fantastic guy. And you look at it, it's like, well, where do you get that? Wrestling for Randy Kalitza. So there's, you know, full circle. And Randy came and was an assistant for me one year. So it's the relationships, you know, in wrestling that, in every sport, I'm sure. But, you know, just look back at the guys that, that I've met and the relationships we've had and how I've benefited from that and, learn from those guys you know when i first started i didn't know anything and uh for whatever reason guys like pete mcnamara who was the coach at beach grove and built an amazing program and phil strader who was over at uh um, at perry meridian 
Uh, and guys like that, uh, Bud Palmer up at Delta, took me under their wing. It's like, let's talk, Dave. Let's talk about this. How do you run your practices? I'm like, I don't know. Just get in there and wrestle. And he's like, oh, wait a minute. Got it. Here's, here's some structure. I asked Don Patton, who was the, the legend coach at Delta. It's like, hey, I just asked him a couple questions. I said, can I ask you a question about this? And he sent me like 20 pages of notes on stuff. It's like, oh, my God. It's like a gold mine. This guy won you know, five titles in a row. Um, just sharing for no other reason than they wanted to share with somebody. And, you know, it's like that's the big thing, whatever you're in. You know, you're learning from your dad. But um, a- ask other people questions, you know, and, and learn from other people. Don't be afraid. you got to put your ego aside. It was easy for me because I didn't know very much about wrestling. So it was easy to ask why you do that or how do you do that move? Could you show me that? How do you run a practice? And you just learn so much over the years from the different people that you work with and yeah. that, that are willing to mentor you. So did you seek these people out? You went, you were cold not as much them? as 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 they sought me out. I, you know, I was just I started going to some of the coaching things, the clinics and things, and and just started talking to people. And and uh, you know, the uh, Al Smith is the old coach at Mishawaka. He always said, "Man, you ought to be a politician because when I go into a room, I want to talk to everybody. I want to meet everybody, and shake hands, and talk to guys. And I just getting to know those guys. And and they started inviting me to things like, "Hey, we're going to." Um, I think it was Pete McNamara really got me on the trip. They said, we're sending a group out to um, Colorado to go to the Olympic Training Center. Do you want to go? And it's like, yeah, please. All right, so we got to go to the Olympic Training Center, and, and you know, I'm, I'm riding out there with Pete McNamara and talking to him. And it's, it was because of guys like him that said, hey, let's send this kid on. And he's, he's young, and he doesn't know much, but he might, might grow into something. And after that trip, then he nominated me to be – uh, to run for president of the coaches association, vice president. Then he went vice president and president, and then uh, of the association. And he nominated me. It's like, what? <laughs> you know, it's like, why are you nominating me? Uh, but and I didn't win. But that got me thinking about doing that. And then a few years later, I, I, I did get nominated. And I did did win the job. So just meeting those people, and they just they wanted to help. You know, they wanted to develop other young coaches. And I try to do that today. You know, work with Jake and. Um, you know, Courtney up at, L, at uh, Frankton, and, you know, it, it, you, you were helped so much by other people. It's like you got to help other people. You know, if you don't, what's wrong with you? Why wouldn't you want to, you know, if you believe in this sport, why wouldn't you want to help people do the best job they can? Yeah, especially you know? once they try to get, get it out of the Olympics. Yeah, yeah, it was, it, it was a really great effort by everybody. So many people. Um, I, I had a chance to talk to Rich Bender, who was the, um, he's the head of USA Wrestling. He's the executive director. And, we were, we were at a funeral for a, a guy here in Indiana that was our former director for ISWA and uh, uh, Mr. Dowden. And Rich, the guy called me over. He goes, hey, I want you to meet Rich Bender. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm, hi. <laughs> and, so, you know, you're like, oh, my gosh, you're, you're one of the top guys in the entire sport. And I, 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 all I could think say was congratulations on, on keeping wrestling. And, he, and he, he said something that I've heard that saying since then, but I'd never heard it before. He said there's a lot of fingerprints on that. And they're just, he said there were a lot of people. It was the NCAA and guys like Dan Gable, who's retired, but, you know, wanted to keep the sport alive. And, and all these different people that um, got together and formed that organization and, and, you know, said, listen, the truth is, FILA, the international organization, goes, the, the truth is, they're not very good. You know, they're not, they're too political and they're not, they weren't, like, how could you be taken by surprise by this? You know, which just shows... You don't have your finger on the pulse. You don't. You don't know. You didn't know that they were considering dropping your sport. You're stunned by that. Why? And to his credit, the guy that was head of FILA resigned. Said, "Okay, I'll, you know, 
I'll resign. They, you know, they started United World Wrestling in its place, but um, it was a group effort. You, know, you can't point to any one person and say they did it because you had got even like Michael Simon, who was a celebrity chef that my wife and I really like. He was, you found out a lot of people, it's like, he was a wrestler? It's like, yeah, he was a wrestler in the Cleveland area. Um, and they got, you know, they did promos for it and everything. And you just saw so many people come together to save it. We're still not at the level. I mean, there's six weight classes in the Olympics, you know, and there's 10 at the, at the Worlds. Yeah. It's like, why, why do we have six? One of the founding sports of the Olympics has six weight <laughs> classes, but you've got rock. I'm not putting these other sports down. Good for them. If they, you know, but they've got space for rock climbing at the Olympics. That's a, that's a new sport hmm. for Tokyo, rock climbing, which I'm sure that is exciting for the people who do it, but okay, but you've only got six weight classes for wrestling, but you got room for rock climbing and all the other sports. You know, it's like, how, how does wrestling not get its full complement? And I know there's a lot of people that are saying, maybe it's time to just say, you know what? We don't need the Olympics. Let's, let's go with the Worlds. But, you know, for those wrestlers, being an Olympic champion, being an Olympian, you know, we have two, two girls from Indiana, and I think Indiana is really close to sanctioning wrestling. They're, they're voting on it soon. I think it's going to happen. Um, you know, making the Olympics, being an Olympian is... Everything. Yeah. You know, because it's not a sport where you're going to make millions. you got some wrestlers that are making pretty good money now. Cale Sanderson, guys like that are making well into six figures. And with clinics and camps, a lot of them are making, you know, half a million and more a year. And that's great. Uh, but the average person in wrestling, you know, the average basketball player, professional basketball player is a millionaire. The average wrestling coach is not, you yeah. know. Uh, and they've tried real pro wrestling several times and it just hasn't doesn't generate the, the revenue it needs to succeed. So yeah, I think they want to be, you know, in the Olympics, even if it's not, they're, they're not trained fairly because of, you know, I had the good fortune to work with Gene Mills when I was young, another guy that I was working at a camp and the guy was kind of a scammer and wouldn't treat me real well. And Gene Mills was one of the clinicians. And, and uh, he goes, Dave, why don't you come up to my camp? I'll show you how a camp's supposed to be run. And I, I said, okay. And it was up in Syracuse. And I'd never been to upstate New York. That would be a great chance to see that. So I went up there and I did several years up there with Gene, uh, who was the, then the assistant at Syracuse and just loved it. His camps were huge and Syracuse is beautiful. Mountains up there and everything. It was really cool and had a great time. And and got to know Gene over the years, and I still see him every now and then at the NCAs and stuff, and and talk to him periodically. And and uh, he was on the '80 Olympic team that didn't get to go. And then he was injured in '84, and by '88 his career was over. And so and he was the best wrestler in the world, probably pound for pound. In 1980, he pinned the top four guys over the next like year and a half after the Olympics. We didn't go because it was in Moscow, and they invaded Afghanistan. Um, and so he didn't get to go, and then he was injured in 84. Um, over the next four years after the 80 Olympics, or next year after the 80 Olympics, he pinned the top four guys from the Olympics, from the Moscow Olympics. He pinned them, didn't beat them, pinned the gold, silver, and bronze medalist and the fourth-place finisher. Wow. Pinned them, all right? And it's like, I think he was the best, you know? And it still hurts him. When, you know, we talk to him, it's like, that hurt. It still hurts. You know, he was invited in Barcelona, one of the— uh, later Olympics, they invited him to do part of the torch relay. You know, it's like you know, Coca-Cola was a sponsor, and they invited him to do that. And that was cool, but he never got his moment. You know, and you know, we hear people talking about boycotting the Beijing Olympics, the 22... 2008? Well, no, the 2022 Olympics. Oh. They've got a winter games now. Oh, I didn't know right? that. Yeah. Uh, and you can make an argument, maybe you shouldn't 
give Olympic Games to totalitarian dictatorships. But <laughs> the thought of banning the, or, or not going, you know, there's people saying we shouldn't go because it lends legitimacy. It's like, here's the thing. You're an athlete. You've trained your whole life. And you want to be taken out because of a, a political decision. You know, and I think of guys like Gene Mills, it's like, don't do that. Don't do Those Winter Olympians have trained just as hard. Those ice skaters and cross-country skiers and biathletes and all those people that are in there for those sports, they've trained just as hard and sacrificed just as much. And if you don't go, what if that's their only shot at the Olympic Games? You know, it's like, there are other ways. Don't send our political delegation. Don't, don't have the president or vice president go to Beijing as a protest. Don't send a full uh, contingent of... Uh, USOC people, Olympic Committee people, you can you can protest what China does, and they do horrible things. They are treating the Uyghurs awfully, and um, you know they're, they're concentration camps and you can call them vocational camps all they want. But uh, but don't t- don't deny the athletes their chance to participate because I just think that's horrible when you take an athlete's chance of maybe the one in a lifetime that shouldn't be taken from them ever. Yeah. Well, and it also gives them a chance to go in there and beat them. Yeah. So, yeah, what better? Yeah, Jesse Owens. Yeah, you know? that's exactly what well, it is. Nothing did more to, you know, to, to destroy the, the Aryan myth than Jesse Owens going in and just smoking people. Yeah. You know, and imagine if we'd have boycotted, uh, you know, uh, doing the Olympics there, going going to uh, Berlin for the Olympics. It would have been a, you know, we the world wouldn't know Jesse Owens. You know, I've, I've been over to Ohio State's campus in the Jesse Owens track stadium. Imagine if he's denied his moment because back then it was a lot harder to, because you know, there were no opportunities to make money, you couldn't make money off of your sport, and so people had to go get a job. Yeah. You know, so that amateur was probably, athletes. Yeah. That they stuck to that amateurism model, and you know, even though the communist countries were professionals, because uh, you know, that's their, you're in the <laughs> army, doping, you're in the army, you're, you're and a all hockey the other player. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, the thought of not having Jesse Owens, you know, not having him dominate the 36 Olympics is just horrible to think about. You know. So I hope they don't. I don't think that's going to happen, but there's there's a lot of people who like to see us boycott. I just I just hope we don't. I just think it would be a bad thing for those athletes. It's it's not fair to them. Yeah, absolutely. So in the last forty years, how many athletes do you think you've worked with? Oh gosh, put a number to it. Oh, you're man. a number guy, remember? Yeah, well, no, I remember. <laughs> that's why I'm I'm not a number guy. Um, gosh, you know, you figure 35, 40 kids a year on the team plus football. I did uh, thirty five years at the high school football team, so uh, it's in the Probably the hundreds, upper hundreds, maybe thousands, you know, low thousands. So how many kids have you, do you think you've taught? Oh, gosh. You know, uh, 150 kids a year to 180 kids a year for 40 years. So thousands, you know, maybe four We're getting thousand. closer and closer to 10,000 total lives you've touched in the last... Maybe, yeah, maybe. I don't, you know, I... Yeah. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about how many people have gone in and out of your classroom and in and out of your classroom? Oh, yeah. Room? Especially as you get, you know, I'm 60 now. I turned 60 last October. And you start thinking about, you know, you're definitely closer to the end than you are the start uh, <laughs> of the career. And you start looking back. And especially when I see people and, you know, like I was talking to Ryan Edmondson. And, you know, I get an email every now and then from one of my wrestlers or a former student. And, and uh, uh, my wife was actually... Uh, she works for a large company in Indianapolis, and she was talking to a guy, and, and she mentioned her name, and he said, do you know Dave Cloud? And she said, that's my husband. He goes, I'm doing what I'm doing because of him. You know, And he wasn't an athlete. He was just a business student. Um, and I, we ran, my wife and I were out to dinner one time, and we were talking to a young lady who was a waitress, but she was talking about her business she was starting. She goes, I had your business class. I really loved your business class, and that's why I decided to go into business. So, yeah, it, it is very gratifying when you see somebody that's, living their dream and doing something they want. And, and especially, you know, I've, I've really, 
in the last few years have really been emphasizing the the investment stuff getting started because you know it's like do you trust the government to do this for you is that what you want to live on yeah you know and i, I work uh one of my neighbors michael wright is an investment advisor and he gives me a lot of the numbers and it's like it's it's stunning how many people retire with social security and that's, that's it. it you know 60 some percent of people don't have you know have less than a hundred thousand dollars of savings which might seem like a lot until you realize wait for the next 25 years 30 years you're gonna live on a hundred thousand dollars plus social security and you know social security is obligated by law to be honest with people about where they stand and was in 12 years they'll be able to pay 75 percent of the promised benefits you know either taxes are going up or benefits are going down or more likely a combination of both and that's where i start off with kids I point out that your Social Security benefits have already been cut. And they're like, what? I said, yeah, you'll have to work till you're 67 to get what your grandparents got at 65. You can call whatever you want. That's a cut. You're going to work the same amount of time to get the inflation-adjusted equivalent of what your grandparents got at age 65. So it's already been cut. They're probably going to take away at some point early retirement or at least move it up. You know, Early retirement is probably not going to be 62 for these kids today. It's probably going to be 65. You know, or 64. Uh, and there's some talk of moving uh, full retirement age up to maybe 69 or 70, which some of it makes sense. Longevity of human beings. They're going to live longer. Yeah. They are going to live longer, and they're earning more money. So why wouldn't you want to move it up? But the point is, they can do whatever they want. You know, the Supreme Court has said repeatedly, Social Security is not yours. It is a program that can be taken away at the whim of the government. They, are, they have no legal obligation to give it to you. You know, and, and um, it, it, somebody pointed us out one time, wasn't me. But uh, if anybody ran uh, an investment plan like Social Security and called it, you know, a, a, a retirement plan and used the terminology they use, the trust fund, they'd go to prison because it's not a trust fund. There's no money in it. It's IOUs yeah. from the rest of the government. You know, it's like, well, they got, you know, I saw the senator defending one time. He goes, no, no, they're not running out of money. They've got all these you know, government securities, like, yeah, but payable by who? The government, you know? So, like, where's that money going to come from? You know, it's going to come from taxpayers or, or reduced spending on something else. So, you know, it, it's just so important that, that kids look out for themselves. It's like nobody, you know, I always tell them, nobody is going to care more about your future than you. Your parents do right now because it's their job. But when you're an adult, it's your job to care about your future. And if you're thinking somebody else is going to care more about your future than you, you're ill-informed. You know, that's why you need to learn as much as you can, work with professionals, you know, people like your dad and other investment professionals. Like, that's one I've really come around on in the last few years is I don't think the average person knows enough to do it all on their own. Do you think that there's an issue with financial literacy in this country? I think there is. And we're, you know, we work hard at Pendleton. We, we have the um, uh, personal finance class and in economics and, and all my classes that I teach in the business department, we do a finance, we do a stock simulation to get kids started, show them how mutual funds work. But there definitely is. And and that's there's only so much that you're gonna get the average person to do, and that's where a professional comes in. You know, if you can find that person that um, has a good reputation, and it's not hard to ask around, like who do you trust? Who do you do business with? You know, are you happy with them? Do they sit down? Is it somebody that's just pushing stuff at you because they get a commission, or is it somebody that sits down? Like you guys sit down with people and it's like, let's, you know, and my neighbor, Michael Wright, sits down with people and says, let's, what do you want to do? What's your plan? When do you want to retire? Do you want to open a business? Do you want to travel the world? Do you want to live comfortably? What do you want to do? All right. And it because it's that whole picture of all the decisions you have to make when you're young 
that are going to set you up, you know, when you're older. You can't decide when you're 40 you want to retire when you're 50. Unless yeah. You're, unless you're awfully wealthy, you know, and mommy and daddy are going to leave me a lot. Those decisions are made early, you know, and, and it's hard to explain sometimes to a teenager how the decisions you make when you're 23 or 24 are going to have a huge impact when you're 64. How do you, um, how do you, how do we, how do I, how does, you know, the performance group or even the school system try to impact that earlier or better? Or there, is it a government program thing? Do you need more business owners trying to jump into the school system, offer help? I think all of the above. You know, we do, uh, after we get over our COVID thing this year, I think hopefully we'll be more open next year. And I want to get back to inviting people in. I'd like to have you in now and talk to the kids because um, the more people they see, it's, it's not just a teacher telling me this is part of the class. These are people that make their living helping other people prepare for the future. I, I don't think uh, kids get enough. They've got so many things they have to cover in state requirements and everything, but I, I don't think any kid should be able to graduate without having personal finance, you know, because uh, I'm all for business. I, I love the free market. There's, there's no better alternative. It's raised more people out of poverty than all the government programs in the history of the planet combined. Uh, can't, can't hold a candle to what capitalism has done. It's gotten a bad name and that's, that's a shame. Part of it is because crony capitalism, you know, people say that's capitalism. Like, no, that's, that's a disgusting version of capitalism and it gives people a bad taste of capitalism. But um, seeing people that come in and talk to the kids, say, Here, here's, here's what you got to do and showing them those investment calculators where you can say, look, here's, yeah, you don't have much up front, but look, look how much you can have in the long run. And then showing them if we, you know, let's, let's make, let's do it a little differently. You know, after we run it, it's like, Hey, you start putting away 150 bucks a month when you're a young adult, look how much you got. Now let's say 15 years in, you decide you're going to pay cash for that car and you take that 40 grand out to pay cash for that car. Plus 10% early withdrawal penalty. Right. Yeah. If it's a program you can take out and then let's look at what that does to your total. Right. It's like, even if you put it back in eventually, what's that do to you? And how much it's like, how did that car end up costing you three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars because that money wasn't there to grow. So, yeah, I think there's um, I, I don't have an answer. I wish I did how you get people to understand it. But, you know, we, we live in a society that makes it so easy to get in debt. You know, it's like, gosh, when I was in college, you had to beg for credit. You know, it's like go get a Sears card, use that, go get a small personal loan and pay it back. Right? And now people are bombarded with credit card. I've signed this form and you got a credit card. We'll give you a thousand dollars credit line. Twenty-two know, percent so interest. Yeah, you got kids graduating from college with seven or eight thousand dollars of credit card debt. Forget their student loan debt. You know they're graduating with seven or eight thousand dollars of credit card debt because the credit card, the banks long ago figured out, hey, even during tough times, credit cards can still be a pretty good profit center for us. And like you said, a twenty-two percent interest it adds up even with the write-offs. For people who don't pay in the bankruptcies, it's still pretty daggone lucrative. You know, if you can get people to just like, hey, a three or four hundred dollar a month credit card payment, that's part of life. You make you got your MasterCard payment every month. You'll probably be doing that till I retire, you know? That that thinking. But there's not enough people saying, Hey, let's look at the other side. Who's paying you? You know, are you how much money are you putting away for your future? You know, yeah, so we got pretty far afield from wrestling, but yeah, no, you're but, getting into one of my other passions, which is getting kids started on investing. Yeah, and well, and that's something that I feel like is people don't find out until too late in life, and you're For already sure. one hundred fifty thousand dollars in debt from college, yep. 
And you're starting to see Pendleton push more and more trade schools again. You're starting to see the Anderson Career Campus where kids are going and they're getting Absolutely. real applicable skills. Yeah. Um, and I didn't even graduate that long ago. And not that those things weren't there, but a lot of those things weren't there. They did get cut back, you know, and there was funding thing. And, and uh, I'm a big fan of Mike Rowe. Uh, and he talks a lot about, you know, we went for a long time. It's like, oh, no, you got to go to college. You got to go to college. It's like, why? You know, our plumber makes a lot more money than I do, you know, uh, and he didn't graduate high school, you know, but on the weekends he gets 85 bucks an hour. I don't know too many people make $85 an hour. So it's, it's not, a, it's not just about working smart. You know, everybody, oh, you got to work smarter, smart. We got to be willing to work hard too, but you've got auto mechanics that are making over a hundred thousand dollars a year. If you work for a good dealership, um, there's nothing wrong with working hard. I think we kind of, equated it with a lack of dignity if you had to work hard and it's like that's just not true i think there's a lot of there's dignity in in work regardless of what it is if you're doing something honest and you're selling people something at the price it's worth you know and and making them better off whether it's making their car run better or showing them how to invest their money then you're doing something good and you shouldn't be embarrassed that well i didn't go to college who cares you know uh, bill gates dropped out of college you know um so uh, yeah, I, I definitely want to. I think it's a good thing that we're we're starting to come around a little bit and see more of the emphasis on the vocational training because it, there aren't enough plumbers and electricians. And you know, you got people telling. I I know some people in the trades and they're like we can't find starving. Yeah, we can't find enough people. We could do more work if we could find more people. And we're not talking about you know nine or ten dollar an hour fast food jobs. We're talking about it's like we're going to pay eighteen dollars an hour, nineteen dollars an hour to learn. And you're going to make 40 some bucks an hour once you get your journeyman's. Mm-hmm. And they can't find enough people because, well, I got to go to college. It's like, why? Why do you need to go to college? And I, if, you know, if you want to, there's certain jobs. If you want that job, you got to go to college. Yeah. You know, but it, college isn't for everyone, right? Uh, work is for everyone. And I think the big thing is finding the work you want to do, whatever that is. You know, if, it, if it's dignified and it's going to pay your bills and leave you enough money to put something away for the future, then who cares whether you got some letters after your name? You know, find, find, what you're passionate about, whether it's building things or fixing things or going to college, whatever that is, you know, but I, I, yeah, I think we do d- disservice sometimes pushing kids to go to college. If they, it's like, what do you want to do? I don't know. They might be better off working for a year or two. And then, a gap year. Yeah. Something. I don't think that's the worst thing that started off as kind of a, you know, rich person thing. You know, you don't have to do your gap year in Europe. You know, you could do your gap year in Pendleton. Yeah. You can yeah. go get a job and see what you want to do for a year. Right. One of the best things that happened to me when I was in college my, one of my friends, whose dad was an engineer, got a job at a factory up in Michigan. And so, uh, and this was like 1981, when there's no jobs around here, depth of a deep, deep, nasty recession. Uh, the, the worst of all worlds, what they called stagflation. So you had massive unemployment and 13% inflation. So you were making 15% on CDs and losing money because 13% is eaten up by inflation. And then you're getting taxed on the 15% that you got paid. So you actually put your money in a CD and lost money at 15%. Right? It's like, that's insane. Uh, but he was working at a factory in Michigan and got me a job up there because it paid pretty good wages, comparatively speaking. Uh, not today, but compared to back then. And it was a great experience because it was a miserable job. I'm working in a factory and I'm like, okay, this is why I need to get my college degree. This is not the kind of work I want to do. I don't want to work in a factory. Uh, it was dirty. We were making Apple computer housings, so we couldn't work fast enough. We were working seven days a week. Uh, 
and because that was when the, the boom started in personal computers. And so I was making a lot of money, which was good because I was paying for college. But uh, it's like, this is not, you know, I was working behind, beside guys that that was their career. And it's like, this is not what I want to do. I want to finish. So that was, that was a great experience. So I kind of did a gap year while I was in college working in a factory setting. It's like, okay, I don't want to do this. Yeah. This is not what I want to do. It showed me early on, get your degree so you can go do what you want to do. You know, which I thought was marketing turned out to be teaching, but um, that was that was a great experience. And I think a lot of kids, you know, if they took a job in the real world, one they might find something they like, yeah, and then not have that college debt and get into a program that where they get a skill and they can make a lot of money, or or they might say, okay, now one I saved some money, I, can, I don't have to borrow everything to go to college, and I definitely am committed. I mean, I'm, the average eighteen-year-old, well, I know me, I wasn't ready for all the responsibility of college. But I think at 19, you know, I look back when I was taking graduate courses, like, gosh, they seem so easy. Well, you're grown up and it's your job to get this class done, right? And you take it a little bit more serious. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I think you might see that a little more if kids waited a little bit, but. You know, or paid the money out of their pocket rather than a signature on a line that I'll pay this back eventually. Yeah, boy, that that's a big obligation they're taking on. And now, you know, we've, you know, student loan debt has exceeded credit card debt. You got a lot of kids that owe a heck of a lot of money, you know, and you're talking about people that are 20, 30 years out of college still paying for it. It's like, Oh my goodness. You know, I got mine paid off in nine and thought that was horrible. It took me nine years and, um, man. So, you know, that's just the last year. Or so I had to finance. I just didn't have a job the last year where I made enough. And so I borrowed and that was, I thought that was a lot to pay $86 a month. For nine, you have people paying thousand dollars a month now. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh my gosh, you know. So, yeah, it, it college is a is a great thing, but yes. you got to know what you want to do. You know, you really have to go in with a plan, like anything else in life. You got to have a plan instead of, well, all my friends are going to college, so that's what I'm doing. That's a mistake. Yeah, and I I think that there was, you know, maybe in the last decade, there's been a lot of construction going on at college campuses. And you're seeing that reflected in your um, college tuition. Yeah. Yeah, it's – Ball State was pretty Spartan when I got there. You know, I look back, I drive through the campus every now and then, it's like, wow, it's beautiful. But there were still World War II era buildings. There were Quonset huts still on campus when I got there. Um, and it was not a very exciting place to be, but that's – it was college. You weren't – you know, but now they've got rock climbing walls and zero entry pools and – those are those things are all nice, but someone's got to pay for them, you know. Yeah. And so yeah, you got a lot of uh, a lot of amenities. They're all nice. Yeah, I can see why if you're an 18 year old, you know, we didn't have air conditioning in our <laughs> dorms. You know, imagine trying to have a, a dorm today at college that didn't have air conditioning. Say, hey, kids, come here and swim. They just go to a different school. I'm not going. Yeah, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to sit. I'm gonna go get hot while I sleep. That's not. Yeah, I've, I've never lived without air conditioning. Why would I go to college and live without it? But the dorms, you had to have uh, like a health problem. Were a, a doctor sign off uh, that you had a health problem. My friend, my roommate, fortunately had asthma, and so we got an air conditioner. There you go. So, like everybody would hang out in our room. Yeah, we you tracked a, him down. And we're like, hey, how good can you breathe? Yeah, he was no, he was a high school uh, teammate. So, but yeah, that was yeah, and we shared a phone. There was like a little thing that you'd open a door and the phone would spin around on a thing. You know, and now it's like, of course, now they have cell phones, so it doesn't matter anymore. But um, all those amenities matter, you know, to kids, but they've got to be paid for. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want an awesome student center and things like that. It, and so, you know, that, that's a big Dave Ramsey thing. Talk about, you know, saving your money, working while you're in college, you know, 
and, and I tell kids this, like, hey, I know you want the college experience, go live on campus, but could you live at home? You know, if you can work it out with your parents that you, you know, can respect each other's rules and boundaries, living at home can save you a lot of money. You know, doing doing your first two years at Ivy Tech and getting those basics out at 1800 bucks, you know, a semester instead of 10000 or 8000 yeah. you know, you can get those covered. And then, you know, your degree is still going to say Purdue or IU or Ball State if you do two years at Ivy Tech and then transfer your credits. And it's going to do just as well. And, you know, back to what you were saying, not everybody, you know, the name that always comes up is, and she was there when I was in campus, so I'm sure I had a class with her, but never met her, but Angela Arents, who recently retired as head of retailing for Apple. She's from New Pal, Indiana, did not graduate from Ball State. Her spring quarter, uh, she got offered the job in the fashion industry she wanted. And so she said, this is what I was going to college to get. So she left and went to New York. She ended up working for a number of different companies, a lot of the big fashion industry companies in America, and then got hired to run Burberry and, and revitalize the Burberry brand over there in London. Uh, and when uh, the guy that was at Apple had in retail and left to go to uh, JCPenney, then she came back to America and, and ran retailing for Apple. And, and she retired just a few years ago, but she was speaking at my son's graduation at Ball State. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, there's, she's she's getting her honorary doctorate from Ball State, but she didn't have an undergrad degree because she found the job she wanted. It was her skill and talent. But I point out to kids like, hey, she's a multi-multi-millionaire now. She, she gave a million dollars to set up a scholarship. She's got enough money that she donated a million to Ball State for a scholarship fund. Uh, and she's from New Pal, Indiana. She's a kid from New Pal, Indiana, who went to Ball State, so she didn't go to Harvard or Penn, something like that, and didn't even graduate from Ball State. And I don't think that hurt her at any point in her career because it was how brilliant she was, how, what a team builder she was, and how much she hustled. Mm-hmm. You know, it wouldn't shock me if she was in sports because she understood. You know, people talked about it, it's like it was the team she put together. Everywhere she went, she put together a great team. She understood that you can't do it all yourself. And she always put the power together. of delegation. She was she trusted the people she worked with and gave them authority to do things. She was there heading the whole program, but she she trusted good people and she brought some of them with her. I think from Burberry probably back to America, but uh, that's what they wanted was somebody that could build the program. And she, you know, she was essentially a coach throughout her career building her program at those different businesses. Sounds familiar. Yeah, it does. does so it? let's talk about that, Coach. So you've built um, teams over the last 40 years. Obviously, you've seen assistant coaches go in and out. The only constant's really been you. As a young coach, obviously I'm an assistant coach, so I don't have the head coach role. Um, talk about what it is like to build a coaching staff to lead a team, and now you're managing not only – your kids and your team, but the coaches and they come in and out and you're always trying to keep the same messaging. Right. It is, it's a challenge uh, because like I said, I think when we started, it's hard to find people that can leave the real world and go coach, you know, and you just don't have that many people on staff who, who are qualified and want to coach. Uh, so you're, you're constantly looking for people that can help you in one way or another. Um, and I learned a long time ago, I'm not a great technician. Adam Miller, who wrestled for me and runs a Company down in St. Louis, a couple companies now, I think, down in St. Louis. He wrestled and went to Wabash. Uh, and he, he told me one time that, you know, I, I, I wouldn't go to a technique clinic you were running, but I would, I would, I'd do anything to, to hear you talk about how you motivate kids and, and, and treat people. And it, it's, it's a 
he didn't probably realize it because it was before his time, but uh, Bear Bryant, who was the coach at Alabama, uh, I was at a clinic and this guy uh, was saying, he said, I looked right at Bear and he said, Bear, I wouldn't walk across the street to hear you talk X's and O's. But he said, I'd walk barefoot across the Sahara Desert to hear you talk about motivating young men. You know, and so I learned early on I, I needed to have good assistant coaches. So, I, you know, I had uh, Ed Allen was one of my first assistants, and he's the head volleyball coach at Alabama now. Wow. He was an amazing athlete. He was just one of those guys that could do anything. And I met him when I, back to those relationships. I was at Madison Heights, and Ed was a wrestler there. And uh, I met him then and liked him. He, he was a really good kid and a good athlete. He was one of the few really good wrestlers on the team. And then a few years later, he called me and said, listen, I'm going to be teaching at the elementary school here at East Elementary. Are, do you have any wrestling positions open? I said, yeah, I'd love to have you. So he came and was an assistant for several years. He's the one who worked with Ryan Edmondson, who was a state runner-up for us. He was the guy who wrestled with Ryan every day. And then eventually he was the AU, got the head coaching job at AU. He left left us because that was starting to take up. So he was just exhausted and then moved on to Tulsa. And, and now he's the head volleyball coach at Alabama. Uh, and still talk to him occasionally. I, I need to get down there. He keeps saying, you got to come down. It's like, I got an end to a football game at Alabama. I just got to get my I butt. I got to go. I got to get my butt down there. So I, that's something I still need to get done. Um, so I had Ed Allen, Dave Calhoun came in. Uh, and then, you know, I had Eric Kreeble, uh, who was amazing, came over from Anderson. I met him working at a clinic and we started talking and, uh, you know, I said, you know, anytime you want to come to Pendleton, we'd love to have you here. And he said, well, I'm pretty happy here at Anderson. But then eventually, he, you know, he called one night and he goes, hey, listen, do you, are you still looking for somebody? I said, yeah, we could always take you. So he came. And then, of course, he worked with Katie a lot. And and now Katie's my assistant. So um, I was lucky that I knew early enough that I wasn't the guy that was going to teach all the, the technique and everything to, to make our program successful. I need to have good assistant coaches. So I've always you know, been looking and you're always looking for good assistants. I've got an incredible one now, you know, Katie's been regional coach of the year several times. And, and she's, you know, she was the first female wrestler in the hall of fame in Indiana. I think she'll be the first um, female coach to make the hall of fame because she's just, she's that good. She's not a female coach. She's a great coach who happens to be a female, you know, and, and uh, she's just amazing to have. So one is just, this is something they taught us in business. It's like, don't be afraid to hire somebody smarter than yourself. <laughs> You know, and that, that's that's a hard thing for us, I think, especially for guys with the ego. It's like, I, you know, what if they know more than me? They could take my job. It's like, if you're that insecure, they probably should take your job. But, you know, if you want to prove you're smart, hire people smarter than you. And Katie has forgotten more wrestling than I'll ever know. I mean, she's worked with the, the Steiners and the Brands Brothers and DeRoe and all the people at the national level. And we go to clinics and they'll have USA people come in and the guy will be going through something. And it's like, we do that in practice. I looked at Katie one time and said, oh, my gosh, they're doing all this stuff. She goes, where do you think I learned it? You know, she, she was on the U.S. national team for six or seven years. And so she learned all those things while she was doing it. And now she's brought it into our room. So, yeah, you, you got to have great assistant coaches. You can't do it all yourself. You know, those, those guys do it all themselves. They might be successful, but they're exhausted. And they can't, don't have much of a life outside of wrestling. So I've, I've been very fortunate that, you know, I, I learned early on I need to bring in people better than myself to be assistants. And to be honest, the, the best programs, that's what they do. They, they're they not afraid to bring in somebody who knows more than they do. Yeah. That speaks to your character, I think. Well, you learn the hard way. It's like, you're not good enough. You know, yeah. you're just, you're not good enough. You know, you have to admit that about yourself. It's like, I didn't, I wasn't a great technical wrestler. I had good coaches in high school, but I, I did wrestling more for fun during the winter with my buddies. I was a football player. 
And so when it, the opportunity came up to wrestle, it's like I better I better figure out, you know, how to do this right. And you know, good assistance helped me do that. Yeah, they change everything. Yeah, they do. Right, Jake Stillwell. Yeah. Good assistance. Or Sean Kirby. Right? <laughs> for for, uh, for no, the I would never want his job, and he would never want my job. And it's you know, we we both have what we're good at and where we can fit in and yeah. how we can help kids. Yeah, for sure. So um, that being said, Dave Cloud, I have kept you in here for over an hour. Um, gone quick. It has gone it's quick. Been it's been really fun. Um, I want you to leave with one final thing, and this is what would Dave Cloud now today say to Dave Cloud, you know, his first year at Pendleton, or say, hey, you know, this is what you did. What would young Dave Cloud actually say to that? Uh, I'm not sure he'd listen, but uh, old Dave Cloud would tell young Dave Cloud, don't be afraid to learn. Don't be afraid, you know, because I had to learn all these things the hard way. It's like you don't know everything. You really don't. Uh, and so, you know, don't be afraid to to ask people. I wish I'd reached out to other people sooner and asked for help. You know, I look back. It's like I was a, I was in Muncie. Why did I not volunteer to 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 go to the Delta program while I was up there? You know, it was a 15 minute drive from campus. I could have been you know, learning from one of the greatest Indiana wrestling coaches ever, uh, you know, and so just be willing to, to learn and be, put your ego aside, you know, that you don't know everything and you need to learn a lot and you, you want to, you, you owe it to your kids to give them the best opportunity you can. And that, that may not come from you. It might come from other places and other people. So I would probably just tell them, Hey, don't be afraid to, to open up and, and learn from other people because there's a lot more people that know a lot more than you. Yeah, absolutely. So to any young person who's out there, go find somebody with gray hair. Go find somebody you respect, admire, somebody who's helped you grow as a person. Ask them for help, um, and it'll change your life. Yeah. Doesn't even have to be a gray hair. Could be somebody that's been <laughs> at it for eight or ten years. You know, uh, somebody, you know, and, and I, I did learn a lot from a lot of the coaches that had been in it just a few years more than me. So, yeah, the, always be willing to learn. There's always there's always more you can learn, all right? And don't be afraid to add it. Add it in if somebody can, is doing something better than you. Almost everything we do, I've stolen from somebody else. You know, when somebody says, how do you do that? I'm always willing to share because it, it was stolen. Yeah. <laughs> everything I have is stolen property. <laughs> I have no original ideas. I'm a fence. <laughs> All right, I just, I fence stolen property. There we go. Well, Coach, I appreciate you. I love you. Thank you very much. Mutual, and I appreciate you having me, and thanks. Bye, Bye guys. Everybody. Hey, guys. Thank you again so much for your love and support of the Performance Group Podcast. For more information on the podcast, the Performance Group, or even our guests, feel free to reach out directly via our website, performancegroupindiana.com, or feel free to email me directly, which is sean at performancegroupindiana.com. We'll see you guys next week.